1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author Julia Sloan, Ph.D. Her book, her new book, is Learning to Think Strategically. Uh, Dr. Sloan says that the absence of strategic thinkers is a resounding cry echoed around the world by senior leaders in business, military, and government, and she suggests that most leaders are entrapped in a outdated industrial-age mindset when it comes to the approach they use for developing strategic thinkers devoid of any imaginative edge, and clueless about how people learn to think strategically. Uh, Dr. Sloan is principal of Sloan International Incorporated, uh, specializing in how successful strategists learn to think strategically. And she also teaches strategic thinking at Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Julia. Nice to have you here. Oh,
2: thank you. Thanks so much. I'm happy to be here.
1: Well, to learning to... When we read your book... I assume that by the time we finish the book, we are going to be able to think strategically, and we can apply that to whether we work in government, the military, uh, the private sector. Uh, so what? how are we going to learn st- to think strategically, and why is it so important? Why is it so important now?
2: Well, I think why it's so important now, I think the term itself has become so trendy, and I think it's become trendy I think it's become very trendy because I think people are intuitively realizing that there has to be more than strategic planning. And I think people are beginning to revisit the notion that the really number one chief responsibility of any leader is to set the direction, to set that strategy. And we realize, I think, we don't know what that means but it's much 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 more than setting up a plan. And so I think this this term people are using the term strategic planning, strategic thinking, strategy they're gobbling it all together and really mixing it up. And I think what we have now is this grossly overused and misused, and underdefined term. And so what I have done, you know, as a result of my research is really tease that apart and take a look at three component parts of a strategy. And strategic thinking is the component part that I really do take a look at real carefully.
1: Uh, Well, you're talking about different organizations, I guess, and also just backtrack a little bit. I think you say there's a difference between... Uh, leaders and managers and maybe we are caught up in the manager part. You just have to manage stuff but it's more than that, right? If you want to be a leader and you really want to Think strategically. Learn to do it. It's a process, and uh, impart that to others. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yes, I think I think uh, it's really considered to be the key leadership responsibility is to set the strategy, to set that direction. And I I tend I know there are a lot of people who tend to really you know micro differentiate between managers and leaders, and if, if that's the route people are going, I would put strategic planning under the management domain um and strategic thinking squarely with um with leadership and it's it 's a very very complex capability i think it 's far 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 more than a skill set and i think this is one of the things that has really driven my interest is the fact that um you know it's it's something we know that learning strategic thinking is something that is in fact learnable but is it teachable has has really been my biggest um, my biggest question
1: Well in your book you talk about the five essential attributes of successful strategic thinkers uh, let's put that in a context let's just take today with government because you talk about government it should work in mm-hmm. government it should work in the private sector military. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's put it in the context of our government today, strategic thinking, and our leader or leadership.
2: Hmm. Um, <laughs> well, I would say this. This is something I probably think about every single day. When you look at the five attributes that I really do go into quite a lot of detail in the book, um, imagination, meaning. Really, an ability to use divergent thinking, having a broad perspective, being able to see things in panoramic view, being able to look at things in panoramic view means pull, being able to pull in really critical elements such as history, such as um, economics, such as social. Looking into the future, and these are things um, you know. These are things that I, I continue to be perplexed with when I read the news um, every day in terms of, of our leadership here, an ability to juggle, being able to pay attention to many, many competing interests and incomplete information, inaccurate information, but but still being able to keep those things in focus, having an ability to deal with things over which you have no control without oversimplifying by being able to simply say, um, you know, we need to be able to deal with Unknowns, and there's a huge, huge element of of being able to deal with risk here, and uh, a conviction in terms of 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 a desire to win, with that win being defined. So I think, you know, this is going to be very broad here. But I think this broad perspective, being able to see things from multiple um, frames, being able to see things in a very, very broad historical context from um, different cultural contexts, from economic, from social, from financial perspectives, that's that's something that I think we need to pay a little bit more attention to in terms of uh setting policy and setting strategy right now in, in our country as well as in other countries.
1: Well, do you think we, as the general public, when we go to vote, for instance, are these are the kinds of, obviously, we, we need to read your book, but uh, are these the, the, is this what we think about when we vote for our leaders, whether it's a president or a mayor or a senator or whomever, because I don't think most of us do that in terms of leadership. That's one thing. And second, can you name somebody who sort of would personify a really strategic thinker uh, when it comes to being a leader, whether it's government, military or corporate?
2: Sure. Well, let me let me go back. You know, I feel like when I I don't know what goes through the minds of people, you know, I think that's probably something on a very individual basis when people do go to vote. But I do think that this whole almost impulsive, reactionary um um, a response that we're tending to have more and more of. I don't think that's serving us when it comes to thinking strategically. I think one of the key things that needs to happen, and um, I think there are a lot of places that could could be used to help to teach this is to really help us exercise an ability to really slow down our thought process, to just slow down our thought process so that we can very consciously say, what are the things that are going through my mind right now? What are the things that are missing? What are the things I'm focusing on? Do I have a focus? And what's that um, focus propped up by? What are some of the fundamental assumptions that that my focus is propped up right now um, by? And I, I don't think some of these things are perhaps going through the minds of of many people when we vote. Um, In terms of of real strategic thinkers, people who do tend to demonstrate the five attributes on a a consistent basis, um, I I think around the globe there are leaders from every culture and every country who do demonstrate this. I think a lot of them are not in the media eye. The same in corporations, I think. um, Certainly people who are in the media eye very clearly and very brightly, I would say um, Jeff Bezos is is somebody that I think is an incredible, he may be controversial, but um, I think he's an incredible strategic thinker. Richard Branson is another person that I think is an amazing strategic thinker you know, also very much in the media eye. But I think there are a lot of strategic thinkers who, in fact, are not called to strategy meetings. They're not participating in strategy meetings um, simply because they are strategic thinkers and they may not be really strong strategic planners. And I think, I think that's something that um, my hope is that the book will sort of highlight is that I think there's a lot of untapped talent when it comes to strategic thinking within companies, and certainly within policy.
1: Well, you've, obviously, well, the first two, well, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, are superstars. So,
2: <laughs> right. Um,
1: yeah, and uh,
2: And I very guess much they, in the media eye where I think, um, you know, when you look at some of the things that they do, they really do integrate and they really do incorporate the five attributes in a way that I think is good for people to be able to see...
1: Yeah. So those would be, those would be, well, two examples of people to, individuals to look up to, to see what they do and how they think and how they, what choices they make, uh, because they are out there and we do have the availability to sort of see how they operate. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at least, I guess, through the media. But, okay. Let's get back to, you know, the specifics of your book. Um, cause you say these are certain things that we're going to be able to understand the five essential attributes, obviously, that you mentioned. Um, how do these, but the, I think the key question is, and, and what you answer in the book is how successful strategists learn to think strategically. How do Correct. they, how do you become a Richard Branson? <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I think there's probably only, you know, there's only one of each of us, so he's taken.
1: He's (laughs) taken, okay, we'll have
2: to, yeah. But I think some things, the emphasis of my book is really on the learning. How is it that people really do learn to think this way? And I think it's very difficult to try to improve something if we don't know um, how pe- if we don't know what it is, and if we don't know how people learn it. And I think there, again, because of the pace, because of the pace and the complexity of the world in which everybody is trying to make strategy or purports to be making strategy today, I think that gets in our way. Um, so I think some of the things that I really focus on the on the book, and and this comes from uh, my research. Is the fact that strategic thinking is so not what people think it is. Strategic thinking is a very informal process that's based on and really focuses on the problem rather than the solution. So I think this is sort of the first, the first uh, tripping zone, if you will, um, when people are just galloping along, solution, 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 is to say, wait a minute, have we really focused and have we really defined our problem? Many, many times, things that we call a strategic problem, in fact, are not strategic at all. They're just a problem that needs a, a solution. But I think when we're looking at the complex world in which we're operating, we need to slow down and begin to use complex thinking processes in order to be able to address complex problems. And this is something that I think, you know, there's, uh, I, th- I think the problem itself is supported, and this may be a little bit controversial, but I think the problem itself is supported. Uh, um, by our education system, which is so focused on solutions and results, and everything that matters needs to be measured, and I think we have to step back in education and, as, as educators, to say, are there things, and what are those things that may bring tremendous value, but are not necessarily measurable? And so I, you know, this is this is a large leap for some. I think engagement and involvement in the arts is probably whatever that may be. I think is, is just an incredibly valuable way to teach some of the complex thinking capabilities that are required for strategic thinkers. And I think sometimes that's um, pushed aside a little bit by our education system.
1: I would agree with you. I do think, though, I think one of the issues, too, is there's always seems to be in most institutions that I deal with on a daily basis, there's sort of this immediacy, this to solve a problem. And it has to happen now. And we have a a budget and we have timeframes and we have to do it now. So even though the problem, as you describe it, may be very complex, we sort of wind up, as you say, with these kind of simplistic answers, and they don't work. And actually, what is the exactly. – de- let's give – I always like to give examples. What are we ta- – just give us some examples of how – what I just mentioned and also what you said just previously, that if you do take time and you and, – and, and define the problem because it may be very complex, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's the outcome? Because you get different outcomes
2: yeah you you definitely do. and I think what we tend to do is we'll tend to look at a at a problem that in fact is very, very complex and um, we tend to go to something that we know, something that we know that we can solve right now because that tends to satisfy the criteria in terms of how much is it going to cost and how long is this going to take um, but a lot of times in doing, that with, in, in doing that, we only, at best, solve a part of the problem. And usually that part of the problem is what we solve in a way that is habitual. So strategic thinking helps us to break down, first of all, to push, what I call push the pause button. Just push the pause button and step back and say, you know, how have, we, how have we looked at this problem and how are we defining the problem according to whose frames is a good start point. And a lot of that is we tend, when we can identify that, we tend to see. We tend to solve problems in the same way all the time, regardless of the nature of the problem. And I think this is, this is something that I see um, a lot of, not all, but a lot of younger people are, are doing so beautifully, are just doing so well that they are looking at problems very differently, and they are willing to get their hands dirty, and they are willing to rip it Apart and to look at, at some of the causes in in ver- with very very different frames and through very okay, different okay. So lengths. give us an
1: example of that. The young people, for instance, doing it in a very different way and getting I, better results.
2: I think I think with technology. I think again, if we go if we just go right back to Amazon, you know, taking a look at um, grocery distribution, for example, for elderly people. Um, You know, the solution has been to get volunteers from communities to produce meals and to deliver the meals. And for many, many years, we've kind of just worked on the assumption that that's the most efficient and that's the most effective way. Yet when we look at the numbers of elderly people, particularly in rural areas, who are not being served by that approach, this is where, you know, I think a lot of young people are taking a look at technology and say, gosh, okay, so we've got this underserved population, for example, of elderly people in rural areas. How could technology be integrated into that solution? And there's no known solution yet, but there are certainly a lot of, just incredible, amazing experiences with um, with robots and with other sorts of technology delivery systems. That I think are, are, I, I think it's great that there's the, that experimentation.
1: That's a good example. Um, um, yeah, especially since. Uh, well, you're absolutely, obviously, right on target. Amazon just took over uh, Whole Foods, for instance. That's right. Um,
2: <laughs> and you see the same thing in terms of, you know, uprooting um, and disrupting all sorts of industries. Medical care is another. It was unthinkable, you know, the whole idea of, um, you know, call a doc and, and um, you know, getting responses, having immediate deliveries, um, being able to actually do surgeries from afar. There's just an awfully lot of disruptive um, technologies that I think are just so just exemplary of what's needed for strategic thinking and that really apply strategic thinking to situations. And so I know there's a lot of criticism but I, of um, you know, a startup mindset, but I think there's something to be said in terms of looking at it from a strategic thinking perspective.
1: Well, now we have the technology. So we, maybe 20 years ago, we didn't have the technology even to be able to do that. Right? right. I mean, yeah. So that makes a difference,
2: and I think it's um, really made a difference in terms of impact on our thinking. I think some of I, I outline this in in my book. Some of the types of thinking that are really useful for strategic thinking are things that are simply not taught in formal education such as you know the emphasis on divergent thinking. Um, Abstract thinking, everything we try to make concrete, 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 and that's great, that's great for strategic planning, but it doesn't do much in terms of teaching conceptual thinking, pattern recognition, which is necessary for strategic thinking, the whole idea of um, the use of metaphor, Metaphor, again, tends to teach conceptual thinking, abstract thinking, divergent thinking so well, but we tend not to teach that. People think it's, it's a frivolous way of talking. Actually, it's not. It's a very sophisticated way of thinking. Um, the the use of any type of critical reflective thinking is something that's drawing attention but it's not yet really incorporated in, in formal education to the degree that I think it needs to be so i think some you know i think something that i hope comes from from this third edition is that people begin to pay attention to what sorts of of I always say, you know buckets of, of cognitions, what sorts of thinking do we actually need to be paying attention to if we want the outcome to be? people who really can think strategically, And they're very, very different than what we focus on in formal education.
1: Uh, so in formal education, I guess most we do, you say, literal thinking. We're, we've yes. sort of I guess that what you're saying, we're like yes. literal thinkers. Yes. and, and uh, very literal. Uh,
2: very lot you know logical linear rational um, you know concrete reductionist thinkers we want it's give me a solution and give it to me right now and and we're often satisfied with that you know and that's great for strategic planning it is it's it's just not serving strategic thinking i mean the the kinds of cognitions that serve strategic planning are, in fact, very, very different than those that serve strategic thinking. And, in fact, the two work in opposition to each other. And I think one of the difficult challenges for leaders is leaders today really do need to be able to operate with both sorts of cognition. And that's a challenge when one is being taught and the other is not.
1: Okay, you talk (laughs) about leaders today. Let's get back to our leaders. I'm getting back to the... uh government to our leaders who are running our country how because i think that they are literal thinkers and and it sort of goes on both sides of the aisle and and uh you know all the way up and down the
2: aisle
1: um so what is it a cultural thing is it? you know have we is this something that you know is there a cultural problem that that's emerged that's we don't have these strategic thinkers and um, I,
2: I think I think um, I, I think part of it is, is historical. I think part of it is historical that during the Industrial Revolution, um, the whole underlying philosophy of technical rationality, which focused on um, rational thinking and linear, logical <laughs> excuse me rational thinking, that sort of thinking really became um, supreme. During the Industrial Revolution, and it's something that has, I think, served the world very, very well. It has really impacted uh, curriculum development. It's really impacted structure within corporate culture, structure within government institutions. It's just influenced everything in terms of this very linear, rational, convergent, reductionist, concrete thinking mode, very outcome-driven, and I think that is something to be celebrated. I think it's terribly, terribly important. But I think the world has changed a lot since then, and we don't want to lose that. I think what we have to do is add on to that, to say things have become, for a lot of reasons, things have become much more complex. And the degree of uncertainty and unknowns and and all the risk that comes with that is just, it's just very, very, very powerful right now globally. And I think we're not prepared for that. Thinking-wise, we're still trying to use the type of thinking that doesn't fit the environment. So I feel like, um, you know, when you look at, uh, you know, the type of thinking that's needed by the environment and the type of thinking that we're thinkers we're producing, we're very, very much out of sync. And I think to further complicate that, we have institutions that teach and that reward the kinds of thinking that support strategic planning, this convergent, linear, rational, objective sort of thinking. But the type of thinking that supports strategic thinking happens largely informally. So I think a lot of the shift that we need to do is to focus on um, paying attention to ways that we can support strategic thinking, that we can support that nonlinear thinking, that panoramic thinking, the divergent thinking, the critical reflective thinking, the irrational thinking, conceptual thinking, and a lot of that happens. Truly, I, th- I think one of the best ways to, to encourage this is really through engagement in the arts, and it sounds like a total disconnect with what businesses and policymakers may want to hear, but, but um, it, there's a lot to be said for it.
1: Yeah, I would, and it's sort of the—I don't know if it's really left brain, right brain—but it's developing another part of our our brain, I guess, and much, and, much um,
2: more fully. Much more much fully. Much more fully. You know, I, I think the
1: key is, it. though, that you mentioned the complexity of things now and globalization, and that's changed everything, mm-hmm. just like the turn of the century, you know, with the, with the industrial revolution. Um,
2: it absolutely but, has. And I think technology, that combination of technology and globalization that, you know, there's a lot of banter about, there's so much talk about, but I think it's crept up on us very gradually and very slowly. And I think we're, we're beginning to intuit the um, the disconnect. I think we're really beginning to intuit that and and hopefully beginning to unfold some approaches to strengthening this Um as, as people become aware of this. And I think, I think some of the manifestations of this are, for example, the mindfulness, you know, the movement around mindfulness, um, you know, m- what people are calling mindfulness. I mean, that's been around since there have been human beings. But I think people are beginning to pull those concepts together to say, what's the application to the complexity of the world that we live in right now? I think the revisitation of... Um, um, what people have called uh, spirituality is also in, in line with this as well. People are beginning to say what else? What, we're, what we've gotten hooked on and what we've gotten uh, what we've habitualized, It's not serving us what else is out there. Yeah,
1: I think that's very true. We have, well, we have a couple minutes left, but I think because this whole idea of mindfulness and spirituality, it, it, you know, 20 years ago, it was, you know, c- c- uh, touchy-feely kinds of things, yeah. but we're beginning to realize that's not true. Mainstream, even physicians, uh, healthcare facilities are all incorporating that into yeah. their yeah. Uh, medical care. Yeah. As well as you say, corporations and stuff. So, um, I just want to be sure that we have the website that we can go to or websites to go to to get more information about your book and about what we've been talking about today. So if you can give us, sure, uh, give sure. us that. My, yeah.
2: um, my website is www.sloaninternationalconsulting.com and we do conduct learning labs on learning to think strategically that are tons and tons of fun and do result in um, change mindsets And the name of my book is Learning to Think Strategically, and that's exactly the emphasis of it.
1: Great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I did learn just a little bit more about learning to think strategically, but as I say, people have to go out and get the book. Uh, Dr. Julia Sloan, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you so much,
1: Catherine. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. together in conversations that make a difference right here on the Voice America Business Channel, every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to the Catherine Zock show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now the toll free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone and you're listening to the Catherine Zock show. Uh, joining me this morning is author Helen Rothberg, PhD author of the perfect mix. Everything I know about leadership. I learned as a bartender, uh, Leading an organization, according to Dr. Rothberg, is knowing when to stir or shake things up, blend or serve neat. She trains Fortune 500 executives to start up entrepreneurs based on the management and life lessons she learned from working as a bartender while also getting graduate business and behavioral science degrees. With colorful stories, this is in her book of barroom brawls and boardroom bravado, readers conceive of new ways to develop working relationships, keep things running smoothly, and manage infuriating, delightful, and sometimes dangerous clients. Uh, Dr. Rothberg is a professor of strategy at Marist College in uh, New York and uh, still makes a mean cocktail. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here.
3: Thank you so much. I'm delighted to join. So, Helen, we have to know different, what's
1: there's, as you say in the book um, and your own experiences, similarities between leadership, being the good leader, and also being a good bartender, I guess. I always thought of bartenders as social workers, too, because they're good at that as well, uh, people telling them their stories.
3: You're absolutely correct about all the above. Um, <laughs> being a bartender is part having the content knowledge, right? So part knowing how to mix a drink. It's part knowing how to manage a business, especially if you worked on the kind of bars that I did, which also the bartender is helping to manage how quickly a dining room runs. Um, It's part social worker, absolutely, because you do listen a lot to people, and you also try to help create relationships and community at the bar by introducing patrons to each other. Um, So I I actually say in the book it's part psychologist, but social worker is probably even the better view of that. Um, And it's also part leader in that you have to be able to read a situation really, really well You have to be able to diagnose what's called for and act quickly. You need a good understanding of people and you need a good understanding of yourself and where you can shine and be the most helpful and where you should really back off.
1: Yeah. Well, you talk about, you say use a, your brand uh, does this and uh, the acronym is ADVICE, A D V I C E. So what does ADVICE stand for?
3: Well, advice is, if you will, my leadership cocktail. Um, advice. So A stands for action, that when you see an opportunity um, that that fits your strengths well, you should do more and say less and take it. D is determination. It's the idea that you have to really stick with something to get it done, and you should try to get it done in a way um, that has ingenuity and not toxicity. Um, v for in advice is vision, the ability to see not just what could be for your organization and for your people, but also for yourself looking forward and having something to reach to that you could strive for. Um, I is integrity. Pretty simple. Tell the truth. Own what's yours um, and work from there. C, communication. Understanding that communication oftentimes is so much more than just a word. Um, It's in. It's tension, it's tone of voice, it's body language. And E stands for empathy. Um, you need to care. And if you have all of these ingredients in your cocktail, then I would say you have the ability uh, to lead yourself and then perhaps lead others.
1: Yeah. Okay, so if you have all of those, and I would assume that not everyone has all of those, and each one of us is maybe better at one than the other or uh, and has to work on one of those skills more than, than, than the other, the A-D-V-I-C-E. Um, can you apply that to some of because you talk about the uncertain business environment and certainly is uncertain, maybe particularly at this juncture in our history, but, uh, and you're working with Fortune 500 companies, you're working with uh, just small, I guess, upstart businesses, entrepreneurs, how does that fit in to both of those, because those are very different kinds of organizations, how does the, this whole advice uh, concept or uh, management skills, how does that work with with each one of those uh, the the groups of companies?
3: That's a really great question, by the way. Um, well, this is really about um, the people in the company. So I think perhaps many of us uh, might be at a time in history where we might feel um, things are out of our control, for instance. So action would say maybe you can't change everything, but there's something that you can do that will make you better. In the way you're interacting with whatever you're dealing with. So as far as being inside corporations, it's, you know, employees are smart people, many of them, creative people, and yes, they have a myriad of skills, but if, if they come from the place that they're best and they put that to use, then they can start making their company, their lives, their community, their, their small group that they work with better for all. Determination is, is really about seeing th- things through. And to do that vision, you have to know what you're trying to do. And I sometimes find, believe it or not, in the bigger companies, vision is, is what might get lost. There might be a slogan of vision that came out of their strategic plan, and, and maybe it's on everybody's paperweight, but it's really about how do you live that you know, when you have to make choices about how to behave, how do you choose which way to behave? And smaller companies, especially the entrepreneurial ones, while, while, while challenging to work with because of other reasons, um, they have a really good flavor of that because they're hungry and they, they know why they're creating the organization they're working for. Um, integrity is hard. You know, people get lost in any size organization. Um, and get afraid sometimes to tell the truth or tell what they see, or if they make a mistake to own that, it's theirs. They're afraid they're going to get fired or passed over for promotion or shunned by their coworkers. But what I've discovered in my work in organizations is that if you tell the truth and you own what you have not done right, but then figure out how to do it better next time and do it right the next time, people actually have some respect for that. It could be much more forgiving. Uh, communication
2: in... I want to stick with...
1: I, just, I want to not... Uh, let's stick with sure. integrity for a minute because that seems to be a real issue today yeah. in terms of <clears throat> individuals, groups, corporations, whatever it is. I think we've sort of morphed into the society where integrity has kind of just gone down. People just make up stories uh, um, yep. to, to, to fit the situation, whatever it is. Um, and and that that's a real issue. That's a real cultural issue, I guess, and... Um, and I, I, I'm not sure why, uh, but it's and we forgive people and excuse people and allow them to get away with lies and half truths or not truths, no matter what sort of venue they're in. Um, let's talk about that because it seems sure. to me if you can't start with the truth, then you can't do the other, the uh, the rest of it, right? The
3: I, I agree with you. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I think there's a lot of uh, this is. It's a culture of fear, and I think when people are afraid, um, they try to think about the best way to survive, which is a lot different than thriving, and I think that we're in a hypersensitive time, for lack of better language, and some people are afraid to call others out because then they think it makes themselves um, the target instead of the other. Uh, I don't know how much social media might play into this because so much of what people do, whether they like it or not, is made public. Um, but what I have seen is sometimes it takes, It's this is going to sound very cliche, but I've seen it, a person who says, I'm not going to go along with that, and if it means you're going to fire me, um, that's what it's going to mean. Now, that takes a lot of courage if you think about it because when you have a mortgage to pay, and student loans to pay, and maybe you're, you're taking care of an elder parent or putting a child through school, thinking about losing a job for your principals is very hard. But if you think about the long-term costs of that, of not doing that, of having to live with yourself, um, knowing that you're not living in a place that's really honest about you, I think there are long-term implications, not just for how good you might or might not work, but also how you feel about yourself. So, you know, it's such a brilliant question you ask, because the way I see it, and this is probably the core of my book, my book has a lot of fun stories and some advice and great cocktails, but the core of it probably is, in the end, you have to lead yourself. And until you lead yourself, you can't lead others. And to lead yourself, you have to take that deep look, and that's hard. And I'm hoping the book will help some people be encouraged to know that, that it might not be as hard as you think.
1: What about, can you give us an example, like, of what, maybe the worst kind of actual situation you've encountered, um, which has to do with, with integrity within a business?
3: Ah, uh, so, <laughs> worst, yes, yeah, some of it, probably I can't talk about it, but some of it I can Worst has a, a lot of connotations. Um, a bad a very bad situation that i faced and i actually make it a funny thing in the book through a character but is when people present themselves as something that they're really not and they're so charming if you will and there's some appeal about them that while the people who work with that person once they get to know them realize that they're going to have to carry all of that person's weight for them even though that person will always take the credit, and because they're so charming and sociable, they'll get that credit. Um, that's a really toxic situation because management then winds up putting someone without enough skill in the right position because they thought that you know, they're a great person or they, they're, they're very articulate or they can get people to do things for them, and you wind up putting these people in spots where everybody fails. And there's nothing honest about it, not from that person or the people around them. The reason coworkers don't speak up more is because they're afraid of their managers. Hey, my manager really likes this person. And if I tell the truth about that person, then I'm going to get it even worse. So I'm just going to do what I have to do and put my head down. So that could create a, a really terrible situation in an organization because sometimes the wrong people, and I think we've seen this recently, I won't get too involved there, get into uh-huh. very high-level positions of power who have no skill. So I there's think no substance. I that probably is the scariest thing I've seen.
1: Yeah. So what do you do? What do you do as a consultant? You go, you know, you've described the problem, the situation. What do you, When you go into a company, what specifically do you do? To that,
3: that's an interesting to, question. You know, so, you know, I, I'm one of these people who's really blessed to live in both worlds, the academic world and then, if you will, the real world. So I'm usually brought in on some kind of big strategic issue or on a team building issue. And the first thing I always do is um, I, I've learned that what the issue is at hand is 90% not what the manager or the VP who brought me in thinks it is. Um, so I talk to people. I talk to people across all levels, um, across all functions. Um, I ask the people I talk to to recommend other people they think I should talk to, so I call that spidering, kind of spider through the organization. And I look for patterns in what people are telling me about things that occur, things that are good, things that are bad, things they'd like to see differently, things that they love. And then from those patterns, I could begin to get a flavor of what's really going on in that organization and where the challenges are and where the strengths are. And then I would design um, team-building exercises, training exercises, sometimes within the guise of teaching people, let's say, competitive analysis or creating a shadow team. I'll teach them how to, how to work with each other, how to, how to start making small changes in how they look at the world. I could go to senior management and say, hey, you really think your people understand what you want them to accomplish. But I just journeyed through, and they don't understand that at all. Here's what I'm hearing. Let's talk about you know, how to improve those things or, or how to redirect those things. So the first thing I do are talk to the people who work there, because here, here's what I've really learned. Maybe I'm smart, maybe I'm not. Um, but the people who work in these companies are smart. And if you talk to them, you go, you're going to learn where the issues are. So I almost feel as if when I go to a company, I'm a conduit to just be able to communicate back up to the higher levels what's going on because they haven't taken the time or the opportunity to talk to the people within.
1: So you have to define the problem, or what's happening. Well, I was thinking of social work, for instance. The problem that you're brought in for is not necessarily the real problem. When I see a client, or when in the past when I was doing uh, therapy, it was uh, the presenting problem is not the real problem. Usually, that's that that's just the presenting problem, which you're describing in in, in these organizations. It's the same thing. It's um, the same thing.
3: It's exactly yeah. this. It is. It's the same thing, and sometimes. It comes to you pretty fast, and as you know, as a therapist, sometimes you have to work on it for a really long time to get through all the layers of the artichoke. Um, but but you can find it if you're patient, if you walk in there without any judgment, if you don't believe what senior management tells you 100%, um, and, and talk and listen. Uh, there's so much to be learned from that. And I will tell you... Um, I've worked with, with some companies who really have listened and have made some changes, and I've worked with some companies who will say to me, that's not what we brought you here for, right? And then they have to choose maybe to work with someone else or, you know, I, or that's how that works. You know, you can't, you can't fix what they think is wrong if it's not what's wrong.
1: What would you say the characteristics of the senior management who are willing to listen to you? You know, they've brought you in um, and you start, sort of honing in on the truth or what's happening within the company and why, stu- why you know, work isn't getting done. Um, are there any specific kinds of senior management that you see that work better than others?
3: There is, actually. It's a great, another great question. Um, they have to have kind of both parts of their brain engaged, right? They have to really understand the core of how the business works and how the industry works. And even though that might sound, but of course the senior manager is going to know that. That's not really so. You know, Sometimes people um, become very successful in a certain area and then they don't know how to think outside that area anymore. So they have to really understand that dynamic. And they have to also care, literally care about the people who work for them. They have to recognize that the most important asset of their company is the, the human intellectual capital, that resides within it. Some people are really important because of what they know and some people are really important because how they really help others do what they need to do. So I found the best leaders really have both of those kinds of thinking engaged. They're, they're willing to make those tough decisions. They see the environment for what it really is, not what they want it to be or not historically what it's been, and they care about The people who work for them, they understand that the business is more than the quarterly report to Wall Street at the end of the day. It's people's lives and their families' lives, and they have that holistic perspective. And while that might not be the majority of people I run into, there are a lot of them, and and I'm happy to tell you some of them do very good work with their people.
1: Are there any particular industries that do better than others?
3: Mm, Honestly, no. It's really about... (laughs) the company within the industry. It's really about the people who are being brought in to manage and lead, which I think both those are two different, very different things. It, it comes from a company telling the truth to an employee who's going to join them about what that work really is, what their job really is, what life is really like there. It, it co- really comes from the, if you will, personality of an organization more than it does from an industry.
1: Now, you've been in the business a long time and as you say you've been you've had the opportunity you teach also you're in the business community so you've had both over the past let's say 10 15 years what are the changes that you've seen in these companies in terms of 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 how they're able to well how senior man, how people are able to function as good leaders and um is it getting Worse, Or is it getting better? Or, you know, what's happening, let's say, in uh, Fortune 500 companies?
3: In my experience, I would say, honestly, it's harder. It's gotten harder for a few reasons. Um, I think it's become much more litigious. (laughs) Uh, People are afraid to... Look, sometimes you have somebody working in a position and it's just not the right spot for them which is bad for everybody involved, and you might be afraid to, to remove that person or, or, or ask them to move on because you're afraid of what legalities might come behind that. Um, I think people are a little bit more paranoid uh, about uh, what they need to do to keep their job, about whether or not they're appreciated for their contributions, how their contributions are measured. I think we've become a little too enamored. This is going to go against the the major grain of business right now. I think we're much too enamored of data analytics. Um, Data analytics is a fancy term which really means statistics on big databases. Um, It's helping companies make maybe better operational decisions or day-to-day tactical decisions, but it's not a way to measure people. It's not a way to measure progress. It's just a way to measure about how something is working in a moment in time. And when you try to figure out how to measure all of what a person produces through a statistic or a metric or a key performance indicator, I think you lose a lot about what people bring to organizations that can't be measured. How do you measure the contribution of, let's say, one colleague who's really, really good at helping others get over the anxiety of the deadline on a project. How do you measure that? You can't measure that. But the fact is that kind of person is making sure the whole team is doing well. So I think there's a little bit too much reliance on on being able to quantify everything. Um, I think there's a lot of fear about the economy and understanding which way it may or may not go. Um, Most people do believe that, You know, the stock market is really not a predictor of much. It's more of an emotional indicator. And, uh, it fluctuates a lot. People are waiting for the bubble to pop on, in some industries. So everyone's very cautious. And what makes people cautious, um, I also think to be, I I don't want to get political because in my book I say you never talk about sex, politics, and religion. Um, Well, you can do that. You only talk about sports, right? But I think what the election did, just from a sociological perspective, is it divided a lot of people, almost like a Friday night lights in a football game in a small town. So it's created tensions um, that might not have existed before. And it's just become a little stickier of a place to tiptoe through. And kind of how I've been approaching that, as I work really hard to find, is there anything... That could be the least common denominator, a common something that we could create a small win around to help people realize once again, you can take a risk. You can think very differently about the world, but still work well together and move things along that way.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's key, which, uh, the point you just made about we've become very, uh, I mean, it's obvious that we are divided and we're a divided country, it seems, on everything. Um, So where is that going to, and is, how, so, given what we've been talking about, uh, how do we, is there any hope in terms of being able to be united on any issues? Um,
3: I I believe uh, there is, actually, and it's going to come from maybe a place nobody's looking, and I will um, admit my bias right now. Um, I have the luxury, I mean, it's hard work, but I have the luxury of, being a college professor. So I work with hope every semester. I work with young people who have hope in their eyes and believe the world could be a better place. And they are different than we are and maybe they should be, yeah? And they're, they're entering the world of work, at least what I see in my students, with a perspective of, yes, we need to make a living and yes, we need to pay our student loans, but you know what? We want to we wanna get married when we're ready and we want to know our families we want to know our children we want to be connected to our coworkers we want to work in organizations that we believe in that that does good work that we believe in the product that treat people the right way so the unity might come slowly and from an unlikely place but but i do feel two things one our young people are more attentive than maybe a couple generations before them to things that they need to be attentive to. And I also think sometimes when things get so anxious, if you will, and paranoid, to almost the point of crashing, sometimes it needs to be a phoenix. And it, it might force people to look at, wow, this really isn't working. How do we do this a little differently? And then we might start to see pockets of that over time. Well, I'm glad I asked you. I, I am question a cautious a, optimist. You could tell, right? I'm well, a cautiously optimistic person.
1: Uh, it's a great way to end the show because it is cautiously optimistic. I think that is the key word. Um, that's a good, that's a good way of putting it. Um, we're talking to Helen Rothenberg, PhD. Um, and her new book is The Perfect Mix. Everything I know about leadership, I learned as a bartender. So great book. Uh, tell us website we can go to to learn more about you, the book. Uh, I assume we can buy it on Amazon, bookstores everywhere.
3: Absolutely. Um, HelenRothberg.com is my website. actually just launched with the book yesterday. Um, The book is available in in many, uh, all the online uh, opportunities as well as a lot of independent bookstores. And um, there's an opportunity there to reach out to me as well.
1: Great. It was really a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for being on the show.
3: And thank you for the opportunity.
1: Great. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
0: We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.